everybody. I am Dr. Bill Friesen, and I am joined here today by Dr. Scott Masson, and this is Paidea Today. Today, we are going to be talking about the genre of epic, which may seem a little bit anachronistic to some of you because we have been talking over four episodes already about what is controversially known as the greatest epic of them all, the Iliad. And we had actually introduced the series with a discussion which covers many of the topics we're going to try to touch on today. Uh, however, due to the vicissitudes of modern technology, that episode was lost and destroyed. So Dr. Masson and I discussed whether or not it was worth actually turning around and recording this, this particular podcast again today. And we concluded that it was indeed. We have a lot of really important, vital material, which is essential to understanding what the ancients and posterity has done with this uh, type of literature since then. And so uh, we're going to come back to it and we're going to deliver on that topic today. So let's begin with talking about epic. It is somewhat controversial to say that epic was or is the greatest, most noble genre of them all. Um, and there are some who famously have taken issue with that, uh, most notably Aristotle. Uh, yeah. But for the most part, great writers uh, for the last 2,500 years have acknowledged that uh, at the very top of a totem pole, if there is to be a hierarchy of literature, itself a controversial assertion, then at the top of the hierarchy, one will find epic poetry, epic narrative poetry. Yeah. Dr. Masson, can you say a little bit more about what Homer here is inheriting and what he's delivering onto us? Well, uh, so you mentioned a, some, a little bit of disagreement. There isn't really that great a degree of disagreement. It's more the, um, the reputation of the one who disagreed with that, namely Aristotle and his poetics does not really speak much of the epic. He talks about tragedy as the greatest of all. So that's really the, but he's the odd man out there. Uh, in that opinion, in general, as weighty uh, uh, a mind as uh, Aristotle is, in general, uh, people are with Plato on this one. So Plato obviously went after Homer when he was going after the poets in his Republic, and he was explicitly referring to the epic poets, uh, not the tragedians. And uh, it's interesting when you read Aristotle's Poetics that Aristotle, who is Plato's pupil, doesn't explicitly mention Plato's take on this. And, uh, and maybe he's embarrassed. We don't know exactly why he doesn't. I mean, you can't argue from silence. But we do know that he takes a very different tack. And yet it's Aristotle on this subject that seems the odd man out, because we know that Homer was considered to be the teacher of all Hellas, that is, all the Greeks, and that when his poetry was read, it was recited, first of all, in gatherings. And the purposes of that are the title of this uh, podcast that we have, Paideia, was for education Correct. Uh, and cultural values and, and um, relationships and all manner of things were being inculcated in the epic, specifically the epic. It was an encyclopedic genre. Uh, and we can see that that will carry on not only in the Greeks, but uh, will be carried on by Virgil, who also regards uh, the, the Roman poet, who also regards Homer as uh, the greatest uh, of poets, and, and others will regard Virgil uh, likewise, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a strong case, and it's almost incontrovertible, that the epic is the greatest genre. There's only one, one who speaks against that, and that's Aristotle. That's my sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it, it seems an odd thing to assert nowadays because we live in a, a, an equity obsessed culture. And so the notion that any genre should necessarily be in terms of artistic merit better than another is, uh, is almost to court immediate outrage. Um, but the, the, the denigration of the epic and this very curious question of why after Milton we can't write in pretty well any Western language great epic anymore is it's an overwhelming question. We see the epic fall from its lofty position, I think beginning in the Enlightenment, but it's, it's death knell as the greatest of them all comes during the period of the Romantics. And in a much, much later podcast, we can get into. Well, they all write epics, Bill. That's, yes. that's, I, I teach a course on that, and yet nobody reads them, which almost proves your point. Yeah, uh, you have uh, Coleridge in, uh, in his writings famously celebrates the small, the quiet, the everyday, the humble. We see the rise of the novel, which also uh, undermines certain uh, uh, previous understandings of the epic. So we can talk about all of that in a later podcast because it, that's an extremely important discussion. But for now, I think you've asserted what is essential to this discussion, which is the notion that the epics contain... The, the highest, loftiest, most important material that that culture has to offer. Uh, it has particular figures that it talks about, oftentimes gods and godlike heroes, of course, as we've seen in the Iliad. Uh, and of course, the gods themselves walk amongst men, and you have no superfluous material included in this stuff whatsoever. The truths that are being communicated about the human condition are not immediate current truths. This is one of the great accusations of modern literature is that uh, certain works of literature are now irrelevant. They're outdated. We've moved beyond them. Somehow we have <coughs> into a superior set of values uh, than those texts expressed. And so they're outdated. Whereas up until at least the Romantics, the notion was quite the contrary, that a text was a good text insofar as it was able to express truths that were universal, that were timeless, that could span everybody's set of concerns. It, it would span time, it would span, uh, span uh, social hierarchies. Uh, the lowest shepherd and the highest king both could take something away, and oftentimes something of a, a similar species from a great epic text. And this brings us back to that assertion that was made earlier. The traditional notion of what the job of literature was, was simply, this is according to Quintilian, who was simply summing up the general opinion out there right around the period of Augustus, uh, that it was to move uh, the passions and it was to teach the mind and teach the mind specifically at, at, at that moral and ethical level. So it's uh, the actual Latin phrase is movera et docera, but that's beside the point. It's uh, the, the job is the same. So the now, other thing it does, just to amplify what you're saying there, because I think it's correct, it demonstrates that it does such important things by going to realms and regions that we don't see in other forms of poetry. So there are conventions in the epic which other later writers will follow, such as they, they will take us, first of all, they'll in, invoke the muse, but I mean, all ancient poetry of any uh, caliber does that. There are nine muses and there's only one for the epic, but it will, there will be a council of the gods. Uh, there's also a descent into the underworld. So it's talking about regions that we would now describe as the supernatural or the involve the afterlife. And so th those are not normal um, subject matter for poetry or any form of fiction, but they are a characteristic of the epic that it does. So it speaks about all things. It, it, it's, it's totalistic in its, in its worldview and it's an intentionally teaching us about sacred things. 
Yeah, it's the material touched on by Epic is grand and lofty and, you know, it resonates. It's, it's quote unquote epic. Uh, it's meter, dactylic hexameter catches this. If you listen to the beat of dactylic hexameter, it sounds like the gods are walking on the earth. Boom, yeah, da, da, boom, da, da. And it's really, this is one of the difficulties of good epic is that to sustain that elevation page after page or hour after hour, as the case may be with oral epic, and not lose your dramatic power is incredibly difficult. I mean, it's, yeah. imagine like these superhero movies or something like this, where you've got the big battle scene and what have you, and they've built the action to a crescendo. And now you've got to maintain the crescendo minute after minute hour after hour. How do you do that? What kind of an artist must you be? And you, the, the short answer is you have to be absolutely spectacularly good at what you do. And this is one of the reasons such accolades attach to Virgil and Homer and Dante and Milton and so on. Okay. Now, uh, let's say a little bit more about uh, the practice of poetry in ancient Greek culture. We've talked about it here and there before glancingly, but I want to come back to it very, very briefly. Homer was practicing something, and you can correct my pronunciation, I don't have any ancient Greece, uh, Greek, uh, which uh, I want to talk a little bit about poiesis and this notion of the poetic craft. And I was just reading some definitions again today, some modern definitions of what constitutes poiesis. And time and again, they talk about creating something out of nothing. And this is a veritable anathema to the ancient Greek mind and the ancient Greek artist. Uh, the idea here uh, that we encounter in pretty well all ancient writings, Greek and Roman, is that the poet is a craftsman who inherits a raw material, sometimes passed on by the gods, or maybe it's a historical material affected by the gods and put through a godlike sublime filter or something like this. But the bottom line is he creates nothing out of nothing. He's no, no, that's, uh, even, even the gods in Homer don't create in that sense, they don't have that capacity, but certainly the poets don't, and they would never consider that. Here's a helpful illustration. It's from another language, Bill, uh, German. In mm. German, the ex nihilo creation, uh, there's a certain word that's used for that, it's schöpfen. And so the creator's called the schöpfer, whereas what the poet does is dichtung, he's, and therefore he's a dichter. So the poiesis that the ancient Greeks refer to is correspondent with what the Germans call Dichten and so and what the poet does. So the poet takes from already existing materials and already existing stories and simply reformulates them and presents them in his own way in the best way he can. But he doesn't he doesn't create out of nothing. That that's the prerogative and capacity of God alone. So this idea that that we create out of nothing, that's a romantic assertion which doesn't really um, bear any scrutiny, quite frankly. It's, it's a silly assertion. Yeah, and it is an all-pervasive assertion, sadly, uh, yeah. nowadays and since the Romantics. Uh, and it's not a, an assertion that gets challenged and it needs to get, get challenged. I think one of the things that's interesting about that is that this notion that you can create something out of nothing, it's, A, it has no evidence in ancient writings, uh, B, uh, it is directly challenged, I think, just off the top of my head to somebody like Lucretius, who says nothing comes from nothing, famously signaled in The Sound of Music, I suppose. Uh, later on, when Christian writers come to this topic, they actually vehemently agree that uh, nothing comes from nothing, that human beings cannot do this, and they insist that they are doing this, uh, verges on the edge of heresy. 
Well, it's um, it's silly. It's silly even in the ancient world because the gods don't even create the cosmos. In the so in uh, Hesiod's Theogony, which is another uh, epic, um, the gods don't even create everything, and 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 Ovid's rendering of the same thing. Uh, it's not even clear how the universe cosmos comes into existence, but it, it pre-exists, um, and 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 it's fated, and so there's no the gods. Um, are already dealing if they are involved in creation in even in an attenuated sense they're they're working with something that already exists so there's a pre-existent universe and and the gods themselves are subject to fate we've seen that in our previous discussions in the iliad and it, it continues in the odyssey uh, as powerful as zeus is said to be uh, the, the most powerful among the gods he can't go against fate he, that's it's right. fixed. He can't stop that, and that's essential to the tragedy as well, which Aristotle thinks is the most, the most important uh, literary genre. Fate is determines all things. There yes. is no freedom to move outside the confines of what already exists. Yeah, Augustine explains it in terms of he says you you mustn't think of the artist uh, or the great writer as a vessel which is somehow magically filled with something out of nothing he says rather that uh, the, the a great writer is a conduit through which if he's writing great poetry sublime poetry uh, matters sublime and transcendent flow through this conduit and his job his his merit if any merit attaches is in shaping what he already inherits and when we get to the renaissance we're going to see this again we, we have this word artist that we just throw around in a very uncritical way nowadays uh, to the Renaissance mind, especially in England, but also to some extent in France and, and Italy, the artist was anyone who imposed artificial strictures and skills, human uh, human skills, to craft and improve upon what they have inherited by nature. So they talk about gardeners as artists. They talk about cooks as artists. Why? Because Which the cook, are. yeah. So the cook has the food delivered to him or her. And he or she just uh, exercises his, his cooking skills upon it artificially, imposes artifice upon it, and makes it even better than what you had. So also right. the gardener and so on right. and so forth. And this right. is not a new notion. Um, the new notion is our notion of the artist. That idea of the absolute goodness and creation of an artist means that one cannot compare one work to another because they are, they are using totally different uh, criteria. Uh, and they're... Uh, original to the artist but if that were the case then it would be impossible for us to even say this is the best or that's not as good and yet we invariably do so and and so the, just the whole thinking of it is is erroneous but it's obvious that artists read other artists and respond to other writers and even homer himself is dealing with an already existent tradition of storytelling and he is responding to him we'll come to that in a minute when we talk about the backstory of the whole Trojan War, which he assumes his readers understand already, and he certainly does. In fact, he understands it so well that he doesn't even bother recounting it, uh, other than by a passing uh, reference at the end of the Iliad. So all writers read other writers, and they want to uh, compare themselves to those great writers. They want to stand in their midst and be compared, and, and they don't think that they're being denigrated by the comparison. In fact, they think they're being elevated by the association. So this idea that I have to be my own original uh, being and there can be no comparison to me if I'm going to have any integrity, this is a, just a silly thought. It really well, this is. This is one of the things that underscores our loss of our loss of culture in the modern age. We see this in 
one great tale after another. We're going to be looking at a, a bunch of epics here uh, and other works as well, where the author clearly assumes that his audience or her audience has an incredibly rich understanding of all the backstories. There's this huge matrix of culturally shared stories that everybody knows from the lowest swineherd out in the, the, the field or to the loftiest king in his palace. Everybody knows the story of Blah, whoever Blah is. Mm. And so you can make these really powerful, beautiful, detailed, sophisticated, and eloquent references to these stories. So you can sort of set up this binary opposition uh, and see how one thing does its thing in comparison to another story. Um, and your audience, if they're listening carefully and thinking critically, will get these, these quote unquote, learned allusions. It's a bit odd to be saying that in reference to the Iliad coming out of a dark age, but nevertheless, these people were bound together by these tales and the values they expressed and, and the power uh, and richness of a culture like that is difficult to overemphasize. Given what you just said there, I think it's helpful to consider what later, or at least scholars speak of as the primary and the secondary epic. Because yes. these, by Homer, uh, and, and I guess Hesiod, uh, whose works were, we haven't really considered, but um, are important um, in terming, and, and understanding the background to some degree to where the gods came from and where life came from, so the theogony and works and days. Um, these are primary epic. And then we come to secondary epic. What, what's your understanding of that here, Bill? Because this is a sort of an intro to the whole epic as genre here. Yeah. What, My understanding is that the father of secondary, sometimes also known as literary epic, is Virgil. Virgil yeah. is, uh, Virgil, yes, he's inheriting a, a, a literary tradition. Uh, in fact, this literary tradition here, first and foremost, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And he takes what he knows, and then one man articulates on paper his own response to what he has inherited. And so it's instead of a primary epic is an entire culture for generation after generation after generation orally passing on a tale. And each teller of the tale, at least in theory, is in a position to refine, to tweak, to make a little bit better. I mean, you can imagine it, to, to put it in sort of a, a pop culture kind of a setting, uh, imagine that your favorite movies, everybody who actually watched a favorite movie could actually tweak the parts that he or she didn't like and make this part more interesting and downplay that section over there. But imagine this with a really refined literary work where you're doing this over literally hundreds of years. Everybody refines it and refines it and refines it and refines it until you've got such a scintillatingly crystallized version of the tale, which is of such quality and reflects the values of countless generations, prior generations being uh, the object of great veneration here, by the way. And you end up with something like the Iliad or the Odyssey or something like this. This is one of the reasons the literary quality is so high. Secondary epic, on the other hand, bears the stamp of one man. And we're gonna see this again with Dante, and we're gonna see it again with Milton and, and people like this. Uh, so there's a big distinction there between the two. What I'd like to come back to just briefly here, though, is the uh, inherited material. There's a, a great and overwhelming backstory to the Iliad uh, that Homer inherited. And whether or not you believe that Homer actually existed or that he's uh, just kind of a, a name for a collection of poets and what have you who've been uh, refining the material or, or whatever it might be. Um, but there is this story at the beginning concerning the golden apple and Eris. And perhaps you'd like to fill that in for me uh, at this point, Scott. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a very, very, as I say, at the end of the 
Iliad, uh, so book 24. Uh, I'll read the little extract and that'll be it in the Iliad and then I'll give you the backstory. So I'll just, I'll read and then I'll comment. So Achilleus in his standing fury, line 23, outraged great Hector. The blessed gods as they looked upon him were filled with compassion and kept urging clear-sighted Argefontes to steal the body. There, this was pleasing to all the others, but never to Hera, nor Poseidon, nor the girl of the gray eyes, Athena, who kept still their hatred for sacred Ilion as in the beginning. And for Priam and his people, because of the delusion of Paris, who insulted the goddesses when they came to him in his courtyard and favored her who supplied the lust that led to disaster. So that concludes with line 30. It's a, just a veiled and it's an ever so brief allusion to the, to the backstory which lies behind all this. Now, let me say a little bit more about that backstory because it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's ever so tangentially expressed there. Uh, the, according to the myths and the legends, and this is told in, in, uh, in, in other epics that we rarely cite, uh, the Trojan War bro broke out as a result of a beauty contest between three goddesses. Now, these goddesses were Hera, mm -hmm. Athena, and Aphrodite. And this contest took at, uh, place in, a, in another context, which is, which is important here. It was the marriage of Achilles' parents. Uh, Peleus and Thetis. Peleus is father, Thetis is mother, his mother's a goddess. And at this wedding, all the gods were invited, except one. Her name was Eris, E-R-I-S, who was the goddess of discord. Well, of course you don't want somebody who's prone to discord at your wedding. But of course, Eris being the goddess of discord is not happy at being snubbed. And so she tosses a golden apple amongst all the gods. And on upon this is written, to the fairest. And three goddesses, those three that I mentioned, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, all claim it. And Zeus is called upon to, you know, he's the poor man who's the god is going to say, okay, well, you, you've got to decide because, of course, you're the father of gods and men here. Let us know who is the fairest of us all. And, and Zeus, being uh, the wise god who he is, I'm not, I'm not touching this. This is not, <laughs> you know, I'm not going anywhere near this. And so he lets Hermes take. Uh, the goddesses away to Mount Ida, and there they find Paris of Troy. And he is foolish enough to actually make the decision. And of course, he wants to because the goddesses, the three of them, offer him uh, rewards if he should choose them. So Hera offers uh, riches and power, uh, Athena offers him glory in battle, and Aphrodite, of course, uh, that he should have the most beautiful woman in the world as his bride, should he choose her. And Paris, being the lascivious man that he is, chooses Aphrodite, and uh, not Aphrodite's uh, prize. And the prize is, of course, Helen. The problem is that Helen's married to another man, but and that leads to him taking her away, etc. And that begins the whole war. Uh, and so that's the backstory here. And that story, as I said, is not even told in the Iliad. It's, it's briefly referred to, but it's at the very end of the Iliad, and yet it is the context there. And so that's, I think, first of all, important background information, but it says something about the nature of the epic and what you had just said. This isn't just a story, it's talking about um, something very important about the story, and it's leaving out a lot of what we would regard as really important details. Like, like for example, that, it, I mean, Achilles' death, the Achilles' heel, that's not in the Iliad. The end of the war, 
that's not in the Iliad. You would have, I mean, it's about the sack of Troy. Well, Troy isn't even sacked in the Iliad. That's an extraordinary thing, you would have thought. For somebody like me studying primarily medieval texts and oftentimes medieval epics, uh, these tangential references to this great matrix of stories out there is something that is, it's maddening because it lets me know what we don't know, what we've lost. And we've lost so much. And here, luckily, in bits and pieces, we still have sort of echoes and snippets of, of that backstory or some elements of the backstory. It's very incomplete. The other thing is, I just was struck by this as you were talking, was that, of course, many of the elements that you just described, of course, are germane and, and persist in the form of uh, fairy tales, such as were gathered by the Grimm brothers and what have you much, much later on. And so these stories some, uh, sometimes pass on in strange and curious ways. The people who tell the, the, the modern versions or the more modern versions of the story uh, seem to have inherited something from where we don't know. It's hard to authoritatively say, and, and one should not probably. Nevertheless, it also highlights this distinction between the highest, most lofty of uh, genres, the epic, and on the other hand, uh, the kind of uh, forms in which they can sometimes, into which they sometimes devolve. And that sets up this, uh, uh, this three-part hierarchy oftentimes that we talk about when we talk about inherited literatures, where you have the, the, the loftiest uh, form of any story is the myth, the great myth. And the myth talks about uh, divinities and the sublime and the transcendent, the heavenly, and it's the supernatural and all these sorts of things. And they contain these, it is often asserted, they contain these great er truths of the human condition. And or in the, in the German sense, you are, right? Yes, correct. Um, and then beneath those, you have the legends. And the legends sometimes involve some of the divinities, but for the most part, they uh, center on the superhuman hero, the Beowulfs, the Achilles, the people like this and whatnot. And then down at the very bottom of the hierarchy, uh, you've got the fairy tale. Uh, and of course, uh, we have just elements of the fairy tale, of course, uh, sorry, the, uh, the elements of the story in fairy tale form that survived to us uh, of the tale you just narrated of the, the golden apple and not inviting that one particular goddess that gets changed to a fairy later on and so on and so forth. And these are stories about strange and sometimes supernatural events happening to everyday people. So we're dropping down another level again. And of course, the quality of communication of this also drops down a level, diction levels drop down, all these sorts of things drop down in any event. So here, when we're dealing with epic, we're dealing with the upper register of that hierarchy. And I think we need to keep that in mind because there seems to be a lot of sort of implicit or subconscious bias against adopting that kind of tone and this kind of material in the modern setting. And so we're doing something which is really a little bit revolutionary and outrageous in some senses by lauding the form of the epic. But let's come back and talk a little bit more about uh, primary and secondary before we have to move on here. One of the things that we see continuously with oral epic is that um, its initial forms of communication were not written down. Its mode of tra transmission was not, a, not an actual text. It was not a noun. It was not something you could put your hands on. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid came in textual form. At the end of his days, Virgil hated what he had written so much that he wanted it burned on his deathbed. He wanted the, uh, the Aeneid burned. So there was an actual physical text there. Uh, this would not have been the case, we think, with what Homer inherited. Uh, Homer, on the other hand, inherits a recitation, which is memorized. 
And the means by which they memorize these sorts of things is by means of something called a formula. And I have my quick and dirty definition of a formula right here. Uh, formula is a group of words which is regularly employed under the same metrical conditions to express a given essential idea. Um, so the notion that it's a metrical form uh, is important because that's a mnemonic device by which you remember things. And the sheer length of the Iliad inspired a lot of skepticism about the ability of a single poet, a Homer, to actually memorize it in its entirety. It's vast. And how do you actually memorize this entire, uh, something like this, uh, whether or not uh, it's in formulaic language or otherwise? And could this actually be done? And in the English-speaking tradition, the two individuals who are most famous for discovering, A, that it could be done, and B, how it was done, are Lord and Perry. Now, to be fair, there's a man named Robert Wood who writes an essay on the original genius of Homer, I think uh, 1767 or thereabouts. And he is saying that there's not enough there in the home in the poetry to explain the present form of the Homeric poems. But there's a but the German scholar uh, Friedrich August uh, Wolf, I'll use the English expression of that, he says that there are textual problems in the Homeric text and they're not the same as we find in other authors. The only thing that can explain that is that the Homeric text was not written down uh, in earlier days, it was written down much later in the, under the reign of Solon or Pisistratus. And so that begins the so-called Homeric question, which is, was there a Homer? And that's the thing that you're talking about. And then there are various devices that suggests uh, an oral tradition and the mnemonic devices that are, are evidence of that, that, that's fitting into that whole picture. But it's this idea of, a, of uh, not possessing the original text. So sorry for interrupting, go back, back to uh, our English, Milman Perry, right? Yes, Milman and Perry. And the uh, formula. Milman Perry and Alfred Lord. Um, and in brief, what they did essentially, they, they took this new device they had, a recording machine. It looks like a phonograph or something like a record player. And they took it uh, to one of the last existing oral cultures, oral literary cultures that they could find in their day. By the way, they still persist to this day, uh, largely in uh, areas of uh, northern India and stuff like this. So not, it's, the practice is not entirely gone. But uh, in this case, they went to what we would now describe as Serbia. And there they located a Serbian oral poet who had uh, some kind of vast poem that he claimed to have memorized. And he claimed to have memorized it according to using these formula. So you've got sort of traditional sets of noun, verb, adverb, or adjective clauses. And they occur using the same sort of metrical form. Uh, in this case, it's uh, dactylic hexameter form. Uh, in later versions in uh, Northwestern Europe, you're going to find uh, patterns of stress and what have you, and, uh, in, or sorry, and alliteration, which contribute to this. But the bottom line is it's metrical, and the meter helps you memorize and improvise on the spot uh, oftentimes. Right. And he claimed that he could recite with complete accuracy a 30,000-line oral poem, uh, and Lord and Perry... Uh, were very skeptical indeed, kind of sneered at this notion. But they said, we'll give it a shot and we'll record you. And then we'll record you a second time around and see how accurate you were. And they did this. And by thunder, you know, he, the, the poet pulled it off. And they were absolutely flabbergasted. This is possible. And if this is possible, then it's perfectly possible that the same thing had been happening all over the place, all over the world with these oral uh, poems that are handed on and are the inheritance of an entire culture. 
And this is the kind of thing that, uh, in theory at least, Homer himself had inherited. And then he, of course, he's he's uh, modified it and synthesized it and so on and so forth. And so this is the, the theory going forward. If you believe that there was a single Homer out there and not as Wolf did, that this is actually a conglomerate and he's just a convenient figure. Uh, Furthermore, he was said to be, uh, Homer was reputed uh, to be blind as well, a uh, tradition that's passed on by later writers, um, in which case he would have had to have been illiterate in, in some sense, I guess, depending on when he became blind. But, um, but this idea of the musicality of poetry, I think, is really important. I mean, if uh, people want to dispute that meter is easier to, to uh, memorize, consider a form of meter, which is, is rhyme. Rhyme is just, or meters may be a form of rhyme if you want. It's a, a sort of uh, punctuation that is audible and aids memory. I mean, it's very easy to memorize uh, rhyming couplets in, in English. And most pop music is rooted in around a regular meter and a, and a rhyme scheme. And it's a regular one, right? Yeah. The, I mean, the beat the meter, the rhyme scheme, and a great host of other things that go into, in our case here, poetry, uh, assist enormously in memorization. And, you know, you'll see this oftentimes still uh, used when educating children. Uh, yep. If we want them to memorize something, we'll put it in sort of a metrical form or a rhyming form or a combination thereof and what have you. And it's used in boom. classical education right now. Correct. Yep. And it's extremely effective. Uh, that's yep. why we use it. It also, what you mentioned here, also points up a, a very interesting nexus, a connection of, of three sorts of strains of thought in the ancient mind, and not even the ancient mind, it was a connection that uh, was in everybody's mind until recently, which is that the, the vocation of the poet, what he did and how he did it, was somehow deeply bound up with two other things, and that is to say the prophet on the one hand and the musician on the other hand. So music literature and prophecy come together in this really fascinating uh, sort of a storm. Uh, so much so that you'll oftentimes see, I mean, in, in Latin, I know that uh, the word for poet is vates, V-A-T-E-S, uh, which is the same word uh, as their word for poet. And of course, who's the god of both poetry and prophecy in the Greek pantheon? It's Apollo. So it's, it's brought together there as well. So there's this notion here, and they'll talk oftentimes about poetry and music and prophecy almost interchangeably, as if, again, everybody who's listening to uh, this learned piece of work is learned enough to know that prophecy implies poetry, and poetry implies music, and music implies prophecy, and so on and so forth. And there's this really rich conversation waiting to be had if you approach what you're listening to with those, at least those three senses. Uh, and infuse all three of them with this notion of the sublime, the invocation of the muse, the work of, of the transcendent. Yeah, and there's one fine, I don't want to further complicate it, but there's the um, idea also that even though um, this sounds to be an intellectual enterprise and it obviously involves enormous learning and time and so forth, nonetheless, the poet is not entirely in... Uh, in uh, does not master himself in the process of this. There is a sort of a frenzy that comes upon the poet and an inspiration that comes from the gods. Um, and, and it's almost, uh, and it requires not only divine aid and the invocation, but actually there is that falling into under a sort of a trance. And, and so that's there in Plato's Ion, he talks about that. 
as a means of discrediting the poets, of course, as well. This is why the poets can't be trusted. They're not really uh, rational about what they do. Um, but that, that, that idea of being possessed by the, the spirit of the gods in order to prophesy, that's there and it's connected with poetry uh, to some degree. Yeah, we've spoken about this before, but it's worth signaling again here that it, they expect that when, to the Greek mind, the religious experience involves stepping out of oneself. Um, it, it involves falling into a state of ecstasis whereby the worshiper slash poet slash prophet is infused by the God. The God is amongst us. The God is in us. The God is literally in us and the God speaks through us and we experience that realm of the sublime. Uh, this is why we say, you know, we still use the expression in English, I'm beside myself with this, or I'm beside myself with that, with rage, with grief, with whatever. And this is all bound up with this notion of the great artistic experience, the one that, you know, when you hear what you hear, when you read what you read, the hair goes up on the back of your neck, and it's there's something that is not of normal, mundane, earthly experience about what you're going through right now. Same with a song that just takes you to that other place when you hear whatever the musical phrase may be or what have you. Again, you know, the, the hair goes up on the back of your head and there's, you're, you're transported. We use that language as well. And it comes out mm -hmm. of this tradition. The element of inspiration is a, is a big deal there. And it, and it also follows the, the, the biblical canon of writing that's right. So it's inspired right. by God this, and prophets speak. Uh, yeah. not their own words, although they are human agents, but there is an element on which is, is not coming from them. And that's the bit which they may claim makes it the very thing that is worth passing on. It is in fact inspired in some sense. So that's a, that's a challenging issue. Let, let's conclude with one final thing, which we haven't actually touched on, but that's in spite, and maybe because of everything that you just said about the oral nature and uh, about, uh, Wolf's suggestion this is an oral epic and the, and the Homeric question, some question about whether Troy actually existed even. And, that, and in the 18th century and the 19th century for a considerable period, no such place could be even be found. So it's referred to in texts or ancient texts, but there is no such evidence of a city per se. And, and so some question whether what you called uh, or and both of us have been calling this important cultural artifact was just a made-up story and not really telling a historical account and and uh and that was punctuated by a man i'll leave it over to you here what what exactly happened and then we'll talk about the dating of the epic and all that yeah we, we live in an age and this is my opinion of course uh, that is addicted to um deconstruction explaining things away explaining yep. them as either uh unimportant and ridiculous, or even worse, explaining them away as hypocritically evil and hiding some sort of uh, negative moral connotation, whether it's oppression or what have you. So, you know, these are the two, two of the biggest addictions I think that our modern culture has is, is deconstruction and outrage. We're addicted to these things. And this is not a new thing when it comes to the Iliad. Uh, the Iliad people have been trying to explain it away and render it a mere historical slash archaeological slash sociological document uh, without any genuine artistic merit, without any sort of weight or value behind it. This was, I mean, for a time, this is the state to which 
in which the Iliad was cast and it had fallen out of favor as a, an artistic slash historical work. And so there, we have to grapple with the problem of the historicity of the Iliad. Did any of this actually ever happen? And for a long time, the answer was a resounding no. These are well, right. in the Enlightenment for a long time, there was a resounding no. The, the Enlightenment... Never, never like, before that. Yeah, the Enlightenment liked to, dis, uh, to explain away things as well. So ours is not the first uh, age in which we, we do this. And so this is what they did, and they thought they had done it scientifically and rationally, and that was an end of that. And there's a number of individuals uh, who actually decided to rebel against the consensus view, this consensus view, and see what they could find of the historical bases of the tale. And let's remember here, this is very important to remember, the, the original audience of the Iliad didn't consider the Iliad, first and foremost, a historical document. It was that. It, no, I, it was based on history. Yeah, and they had refined it and built it up to some, a, a more valuable document than, quote-unquote, mere history, mere recitation of historical facts. So we have an Englishman who initially went in search of uh, the ruins and what have you, but the person who's most famous for having actually pulled off the discovery of Troy was one Schliemann, Heinrich Schliemann, I believe his name was, who used the Iliad literally as a kind of a, a roadmap by which he found his way forward. Correct. And he actually instituted a series of digs and whatnot and to everybody's amazement, found ruins just where he thought, according to the Iliad, he should find them for the ancient yeah. city of Troy. Yes and no, because he didn't find them on the coast. Like if you're looking for the Iliad you would, or, or Ilium or Troy, you would have thought it was on the coast. He, in fact, found it several hundred meters up, uh, uphill from there, which suggests that, there, that the water on the earth had receded in some ways. And it, it, see, this is the interesting thing. Uh, is that he found it at a place you wouldn't have expected it and because of the, because of the water recession. But he, when he found the city, he found a city on top of a city on top of a city, which is how ancient cities were built. So it had been there for a very long time, just not exactly on the coast. Um, but yeah. there's no disputing what he found, which were masks and all manner of things that, that gave quite substantial archaeological evidence to the fact that Troy actually was a historic site and did uh, host this great battle, which is mentioned uh, throughout Western literature and cultural history. There's, there's, there's no disputing the existence of Troy and what it means in that sense, right? Yeah, there are two rivers, that, of course, that are mentioned very significantly in the Iliad itself, um, which are flowing into the sea at that point. And he was looking for the city right by the, the intersection of those two rivers, which would make sense, of course. Um, but the thing about rivers, of course, is that they carry silt, large amounts of silt. And right, and they can move, uh, yes. Yeah, they, they push out land mass into the oceans uh, immediately around them. And this right. explains uh, why the city of Troy is actually not Im immediately on the coast, but a little bit inland. Yep. It had not been, but it now was. And I yep. think you know, very significantly, we should also mention that, as you say, it's city built upon city built upon city. We dug down, or he dug down, and modern archaeologists have dug down, and have discovered that the lair of the city, which corresponds to the dates that we roughly ascribe to the Trojan War, that city, uh, I think it's the seventh lair down, uh, shows uh, unmistakable marks of having been destroyed by violence. Uh, it shows the signs of metal objects smashing into the masonry and what have you of the walls. It shows uh, signs of fire on the inside, large catastrophic fires that have baked things, what have you. Uh, things have been uh, obviously manually torn down and wrecked. 
and this seems to speak around 1200 BC. That's right. Uh, relatively decisively to the destruction through violence of Troy by a hostile entity. And that matches up perfectly with what we encounter in the Iliad. Like we need to, we need to wrap that up, but the actual tale of the Iliad then and the writing of this story took place obviously sometime between 1200 and uh, the time of, of, uh, of Plato, right? So when would that have been? And that, that was my reference to Pisistratus, he, who was an ancient Greek uh, ruler. He decided that there would be a Greek standard Homer because there were variations on it and that was no longer, it, he thought this has to end. And so in six, the sixth century BC, that's the standard Homer text. So when Homer actually lives, and writes this, if there is a Homer, um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know there's a scholarly debate about that, and there always will be, because there's no definitive proof, but. My thinking is that, and it's just that, it's speculative thinking. Um, I'm around this, I know we don't have enough evidence to respond conclusively uh, as to whether there was a Homer and when exactly he lived and what exactly his influence was. And so anybody who is uh, making absolutely categorical statements on this front immediately has my skepticism. I'm not going to make those kinds of statements. My best guess is that there was a Homer simply on the basis of consistent stylistic choices within the Iliad that seem to be the mark of a single artist. He's very Yeah, I agree. Um, which might be exactly what Pisistratus is railing against, that all of a sudden you've got these other substandard versions of the, the Iliad floating around. And we know that in, into the Middle Ages, we have an extraordinarily substandard version of the text, only about 1,200 lines long, the Ilias Latina, which is absolute garbage. So we know that people varied the Iliad all the time. Um, it's just that it seems to me one man probably predating I'm willing to accept the, the, the general consensus of most scholars that somewhere around 800 is when he was doing his work and when yeah. it got codified. Yeah. Uh, when it was written down again, we don't know. We always have to make a distinction with oral poetry between its date of composition, which is oftentimes, as I've said before, ongoing over centuries in some cases, and when it's actually written down. So we'll have to have this talk when we come to Beowulf as well. That's my understanding. I know there's a debate. Um, there's sufficient evidence there in the text, even in the, even in the language that's used. Homer has his own uh, vocabulary. There are certain words that Homer uses that are there in the text. And this is not Attic Greek. This is not the Greece of, of Plato, uh, Greek of Plato and Aristotle even, it's not Athenian Greek. It, it, it is something a little earlier than that and there's something unique about it. And then the date is speculative, but eighth century. So 400 years after the sack of Troy, a man named Homer writes down uh, or comes up with something like a definitive version of maybe what others have been telling and tells it in a way that people say, yes, that's, that, that's the best version. Let's, let's preserve that one. Yes. And we will pass that one down and we will preserve it. But note the, the, the passage of time and note that by this point, as you just said, and, and rightly so unhelpfully, it's no longer merely a history. They don't dispute the history. It's the meaning of the historical event that's being conveyed in the text. And this is why we will seek to preserve and hold on to it and, and repeat it and sing it and, and teach through it. Um, that's it. Yeah, and this comes back to what I said before. This is, remember what an artist is to the Renaissance, which was the same as what an artist was to generations before from many different sort of facets of Western culture. An artist is simply somebody who inherits something good and then exercises their art upon it 
all these uh, skills and methods and techniques and what have you, and they build it into something even better. So they inherit a historical tale and they build it into something even better. And everybody, sort of, the audience is expected to know that. The ancient Greeks, if they wanted history, they'd go to somebody else, a Thucydides or a Herodotus or somebody like this. But the Iliad was more important than what Thucydides and uh, Herodotus were turning out, as important as they were. This was, yeah. this was a cultural tale of enormous significance and its value is of a different species in nature. But that leads us into a gigantic discussion potentially for which we do not have time today. So perhaps we ought to draw things to a close. Uh, next uh, episode, we are going to be uh, moving into a completely, well, not a completely different text, the Odyssey. And the Odyssey will be doing certain literary and epic things. It'll be doing business in many of the same ways, of course, that the Iliad is. But it also has some radically new takes on some things and gives us a lot of things to think about. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about the Iliad, we talk about it in contradistinction to the Odyssey. And uh, this is a very, very uh, interesting way, I think, of approaching things. But we'll come back to that in our next uh, episode. Uh, but for now, I am Dr. Friesen, and I am joined here by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. And this is Paideia Today. Thank you for listening.